Hello. Hi, everyone. <laughs> it's been a while, guys. It's been a while. It's the end of the year. End of 2018. Yeah. Yep. The... What did we learn, guys? <laughs> What did we learn? The century of counter-revolution. The 100 years of going nowhere and backwards. Yep. Also, and... the 200th anniversary of Karl Marx's birth was kind of underwhelming. Yeah, 200 years of Karl Marx. That's right. Nothing happened. Nothing happened. There was a movie. Oh, There yeah. was a movie. The Young Marx. But the response was kind of strange. The response was lame. Yeah. Like, the film got super me tooed. Like, everyone. <laughs> surprise, surprise. I mean, really, like, a lot of the response was about Carlos Marx, who wasn't a responsible, moral father and husband. Literally, I'm quoting Dirtbag. Which article? Or which? who said um, that? The Outline. It's an online blog. Quote. What's unsettling about this thought-provoking and occasionally electrifying biopic is that it minimizes Mark's moral responsibility for his recidivist dirtbaggery. <laughs> Deep. It was one that was called the like, Communist uh, Manifest Bro, too. One yeah, the bromance. Right. On, on the other side, there was the lame Chapo Trap House response, which basically says that the only thing they got right was making Marx look like a dirtbag. <laughs> so everyone's missing the point. Exactly. And on the Me Too front, I thought that the role of Jenny in the film was pretty interesting. Really presents her as a true collaborator and Engels as a true collaborator. There's a very important scene where she basically says why she is happy. She prefers to be with Marx because she also believes in the revolution. And even though she's an aristocrat, she has abandoned all of those privileges in the name of the revolution. Jenny does become, throughout the years, she developed into a real intellectual partner mm -hmm. of Marx, which, by the way, is in an interview that we did in the Platypus Review in issue 47 from exactly. June 2012 exactly. um, with the author of Love and Capital, yeah. Carl and Jenny Marx and the Birth of Revolution, Mary Gabriel. I was rereading it uh, after reading all these sad, lame reviews. And yeah, well, so the thing that they say about Jenny is, oh, okay, well, you showed Jenny but you didn't show the fact that Marx fathered a child from a maid in 1851 and tried to get Engels to claim that the boy was his. The film suspiciously leaves this out. Uh -huh. And it's like, okay. Like, first you want Jenny not to be just his wife, then you want Marx, though, to be just like a dirtbag. I'm really confused about what... Like, what is the story that we're trying to tell? I don't know. I think, like, it's pr like the movie is pretty clear that it's about the writing of the Communist Manifesto and, like, the relationship between Engels and Marx through that. So there's, like, a really clear political history that maybe doesn't need to have all of the ins and outs of the fascinating life of our uh, dear predecessor. Right, it was actually less about their private life, even though their private life was very much included in the film, but it was sort of offering this bohemian context uh, for Marx's youth and the context of like the rising socialist workers movement, right? Proudhon is an important figure in the film. Uh, everything, all the other movements that are like basically informing Engels and Marx and Jenny are basically being provided. Wilhelm um, <laughs> Weitling gets shut down. <laughs> I, the most important part of the film is the shift from the League of the Just to the Communist League that marks, you know, it's the mm -hmm. replacement of all men are brothers in the banners of the League of the Just to Marx's victory in fighting Wilhelm Weitling, who at the time was the socialist, right? Like this guy is like the most popular, he's a tailor, won over to his cooperative ideas. He's this Christian, like, millennial type. Anyway, so Marx wins this fight and is able to then put on the banners of the Communist League, proletariat of the world unite. And I think that's lost in people. Like, I heard in a couple of the reviews, they were kind of like, oh, it's just so corny. Proletariat of the world unite. She's like, oh, okay, but but it's like the, the film does a good job at showing you where that comes from, right? It's like the opposition to all men are brothers. The subtleties of the fights, of the political fights in this like group yeah. are lost to people. Mm -hmm. Like I heard someone say, oh, maybe this would have been better as a play because it sounds like artificial. I don't think it's that... It's just a period drama. I mean, it's just a classic period drama. 
That's how it's structured, and that's the corniness that people can't handle because it's like mid 19th century, almost Victorian era style period drama. Uh, I had a really good moment at a party the other day when somebody looked me dead in the eyes and asked, like, wait, is the revolution going to be embarrassing? (laughs) (laughs) Is it going to be corny? corny. Yeah. (laughs) Are we going to be, like, demanding freedom? That sounds lame. (laughs) But what what do you think that means? I'm curious. I'm not sure what that means. Um, I think it's the, I think it's, like, the sincerity of it, the corniness of, like, unfurling banners and making demands for workers um and yeah exactly like like pushing demands on the basis of like bourgeois right and freedom that does have like this periodized aspect to it that is exactly what you were talking about laurie like this corniness that comes out of people not wanting to take seriously the 19th century the politics of the 19th century the political Mm -hmm. drama that people were in their own self-conception struggling for freedom and that they were arguing about the ways to understand unfreedom, the formulations of what socialism could be. Mm-hmm. They can't relate to the sensibility. I mean, it is the political context, of course, that's a bigger issue. But like, even as things as subtle as like the kind of sensibility that the, the film represents is kind of lost in them as something who's alien and distant. I'm a huge fan of Jane Austen and all Jane Austen films, so this stuff is like, for me, like it's just pure, pure enjoyment. <laughs> it was an enjoyable, entertaining film. There was this DSA that hosts a podcast called Delete Your Account, and the quote from him is, I thought the movie was rather corny. It felt bourgeois in a very unfortunate way, almost like a preachy Shakespeare in love without the fun cameos. Or sometimes at its worst, it felt like Hamilton without rapping. (laughs) So, okay, okay. Um, He thought that the dialogue was really preachy and that it felt like a little bit, okay, are we just listening to people read out loud from historical texts? So ideas, (laughs) when they matter, they're preachy. Yeah, it's like history. It's like we 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 get it. Stop telling us. Yes, they they went out on the streets and they preached. Yeah. Like that's what that's happened. what they did. They were trying to mobilize Convince people. people. That's what's embarrassing. Proudhon was there doing <laughs> exactly right. what was on what was there in the movie. Yeah, that's right. And it's of course it's bourgeois. Like Engel's dad owned a factory. Ex- like definitely. <laughs> but got it on with one of the factory girls, and then also. Um, apparently her sister. <laughs> and thank God, because if he hadn't gotten that factory poon, who knows where we would be. Yeah, Mary Burns, who was also like a critical part of this milieu that they had, right? And Jenny and Mary yeah. Ingalls. Yeah. She was Irish, by the way. Yeah, yeah. But I guess the corny, the real corny factor is that what people are not getting on is basically what happens at the end. The montage. Oh, the, yeah... I mean, that's the real, like, corny and new left character to the film, right? Um, it's like the closing credits, uh, is, that's what I'm talking about, the closing credits. So it's like Bob Dylan's uh, Like a Rolling Stone, and then you see this crazy montage that, like, jumps over, like, images of the 19th century industrial factories to World War One. Is Che in there? Yeah, Che is in there, of course. Imprisoned Black Men, JFK, Vietnam, Reagan, Thatcher, Mandela, and then 2008 Wall Street market crash. Oh, did we get a picture of, like, Occupy? Of course. Oh. Yeah. No, that's awesome. That was so cool. That was, like, the that was incredible. That was, you know, Marx's ghost, like, passing through the 20th century, just, like, crying. <laughs> yeah. You know, weeping over all of these, all of this, like, tragedy. It felt really lame. I, I didn't like the end at all. It also was kind of interesting, this contrast of the style, because, right, like, most of it is a period drama. It's this political narrative of the 19th century relatively realistic right and then at the end there's like rapid montage like 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 we're catching you up with history like we're on the right side but 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 first there was marks then there was occupy like we're all building this together it's also all endless accumulation of suffering though Mm -hmm. they had a lot of money at that park in new york and occupy i mean (laughs) (laughs) anyway russell simmons was giving people a lot of money the way I thought about it is like it is that the montage like at the end of the film was actually showing like a point that we try to make in Platypus of how like you know Marxism is the most interesting failure politically of of modernity in that it like still haunts us um 
Because all of these, you know, movements the new left occupy, as lame as they are, are still infected and pose a task. They're infected with the presence and ghost of Marx, but... Yeah, but then it's like, they are, right? But what does Marx then represent? Because if Marx represents masculine entitlement, (laughs) uh, right? Like, if that's like the demon that we're fighting when we're like going to read Karl Marx, then it's so meaningless. I guess that's the thing, right? What people don't see is the task instead, Mm -hmm. right? They have to sort of deflect the task by reading Marx as a brochurist or whatever of the present when the question of socialism or the task posed by socialism um yeah just gets unceremoniously shoved aside i mean marx's socialism is entirely like i guess male entitlement in that like the proletariat in reproducing society is thus entitled to taking responsibility for it that's a good one to see. it's <laughs> <laughs> a good comeback thanks <laughs> historical consciousness is like one big dude just like trying to be conscious okay <laughs> bully and his student horseback baby mm-hmm. <laughs> he was a little man he was <laughs> okay so socialism yeah that's what's next that's, that's what we're gonna talk about today up. that's what we need to talk about actually this has been a crazy year on on this front <laughs> let's shall um, we shall let's we let's do it okay So, welcome, hello, hey. (laughs) Um, We're doing something a little experimental today, I guess. Indeed, indeed. We've collected some responses to the question, what is socialism for the podcast? And so why are we, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this, Lori? (laughs) Well, I think that... It's very clear that the question of socialism, uh, even though millennials are particularly interested in socialism, more interested than the previous generation, uh, they're having a little bit of a harder time defining it. Yeah. And we want to address this confusion about what is socialism that is very present in millennials. Maybe turn the confusion into an opportunity to ask the question. Exactly. Brief history of the topic in Platypus, I think, is also due. Um, the election of Trump, the Brexit vote all indicated the crisis and really the end of neoliberalism alongside Corbyn's and Sanders as both of them about socialists. But since then, Platypus shifted its focus, meaning the first decade of Platypus was characterized by a focus on the left. But especially around 2016 and afterwards, we started shifting to emphasize this question of socialism. We had a convention in 2016 that was called What is Socialism? And that was addressing the relationship between socialism, social democracy. The whole title was What is Socialism? International Social Democracy. Exactly. Yeah. And also what's the relationship of socialism to democracy? Uh, these were like very, very, democracy in particular, I think is a theme that's going to come back also a lot yeah. for us for next year, looking forward. But yeah, in the last year, then we also ended up hosting a whole new series of panels on what is socialism in Vienna, in London, Chicago, Berkeley. And so we want to reflect on this uh, in the podcast, I think. It's, yeah. It's very important. Yeah. Also, you know, it's the end of the year. Yeah. So looking back. Exactly. Yeah. So we asked our listeners what is socialism and we had them send us their recordings with the brief answers we're gonna play them for you all and then we're gonna chat about what it brings up we're gonna talk about what it brings up for us in terms of answering the question what is socialism and it's a combination of platypus members as well as non-platypus members uh listeners of the podcast so one thing that we want to get at is not only the confusion among the millennial left about what socialism is, but also the problematic formulation of the question of what is socialism, and that because of the death of the left over the past century, happy 2018, Mm -hmm. it's been a great year, um, there's been a divide between theory and practice, which creates a divide in Marxism itself, creating a divide in the practical, theoretical, and political tasks of socialism. And so we've got some like crazy different responses that while very different may not necessarily be contradictory and could highlight certain things about each other depending on where they're coming from and what people they're coming from yeah shall we okay yeah let's do it
Chris Catron. Socialism is the task for the realization of the social potential made possible but held back by capitalism. Capitalism is the illness of bourgeois society, and socialism is the potential new form of life beyond capitalism. Bourgeois society does not always appear as capitalism, but does so only in crisis. We oscillate in our politics not between capitalism and socialism, but between bourgeois ideology and anti-capitalism, nowadays usually of the cultural, ethno-religious, fundamentalist, communitarian, and identitarian type, forms of anti-bourgeois ideology. But socialism was never, for Marxism at least, simply anti-capitalism. It was never anti-bourgeois. It was the promise of freedom beyond that of bourgeois society. The crisis of capitalism was regarded by Marxism as the tasking of bourgeois society beyond itself by socialism. This is why Lenin called himself a Jacobin and why Eugene Debs called the 4th of July a socialist holiday. Socialism was to be the realization of the potential of bourgeois society, which is otherwise constrained and distorted in capitalism. So long as we live in bourgeois society, there will be the promise and task of socialism. Capitalism is nothing but the potential for socialism. Therefore, socialism is the future of capitalism, and capitalism is the future of socialism. So there's a lot there to unpack, no doubt. The important point of departure is to define capitalism. Capitalism is being defined as the crisis of bourgeois society. Bourgeois society. It's a big issue to unpack, right? But it's fundamentally a description of historical social relations, of a different formulation of class society. Not feudal relations, but bourgeois social relations, mainly for Marx characterized by laborers owning their labor power and taking their labor power to the market, and by capitalists who own the means of production and the relationship between the two that constitutes the reality of capitalist society. And capitalism represents the society entering into crisis. Right. And uh. the crisis is over the question of freedom, right? Bourgeois revolutions were an endeavor to free society, right? To realize this potential towards freedom. And yet it reproduces a form of unfreedom. And that's bourgeois society in crisis. Unemployment being a way of putting that. Unemployment would be an expression, right? A symptomatic yes. expression of a form of unfreedom. Right, which was like necessarily sparked off by the second industrial revolution. It was a crisis in production that created the crisis of bourgeois society in that now there were machines that could ostensibly liberate people from needing to work, and yet the mode of production still requires them to. Or in another case, they, they can't get work. I mean, the problem was that the 1840s revolutions were about people demanding the right to work. Bourgeois right is the right to demand to work. And this is what entered into crisis. Well, the demand for full employment, which was part of, at least in France, in 1848, right? Like, whether or not this is a bourgeois right, like, that's mm -hmm. what's at stake. stake. Like, yeah, is, 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 it, is it a right of all bourgeois citizens to have employment, mm -hmm. right? Because it's couched within the language of bourgeois right, and yet you have a crisis, you have a revolution as a result of it, you have a crisis in government. The demand itself creates a crisis of bourgeois government and the state. And so then the question is, well, maybe the demand for full employment already points beyond something that bourgeois society can offer, and yet it's couched within the terms of bourgeois society. Hence socialism uh, as a proposition that becomes popular around this time. Yeah, I mean, a specific kind of idea of socialism, right? So not like communal land ownership, these kinds of ideas, but modern socialism, wherein the laborer becomes central to the problem of transforming society, the industrial worker. I guess the key thing is why Chris is talking about anti-bourgeois versus socialism. Like he's contrasting the two, like anti-bourgeois versus socialist ideas. And like, why is he saying that? Well, he says socialism was never simply anti-capitalism. 
Right, it's the task posed by bourgeois ideology in crisis. And so can't, you know, jump over it. You can't go around it. You got to go through it. Mm -hmm. And that was the thing. Socialism, he also said, is the realization of the potential of bourgeois society that it's constrained in capitalism. You know, if there's one thing that Platypus presents as a positive lesson in history, right? Like, meaning we have a reading group. We, like, teach people about modern society and the left is that there is this creation of a potential, right? Like capital presents this new self-mastery of society. That socialists are not against this creation of this potential, but rather it's about unleashing it so that it can be realized under more favorable conditions. That it's not just about cutting bigger piece of the pie for working people. It's not about distribution of wealth. (laughs) Right. That it's not about the distribution of wealth. It's not about cutting a bigger piece of the pie for working people. But it's about the fundamental transformation of all of society for the possibility of new forms of life yet to be known. And that's what capitalism makes possible. Which would include the transformation of the meaning of work and of labor. Yeah. Here is Rosa Luxemburg on the question of work in socialist society from December 1918. Exactly 100 years ago, Rosa Luxemburg wrote, In order that everyone in society can enjoy prosperity, everybody must work. Only somebody who performs some useful work for the public at large, whether by hand or brain, can be entitled to receive from society the means for satisfying his needs. A life of leisure, like most of the rich exploiters currently lead, will come to an end. A general requirement to work for all who are able to do so, from which small children, the aged and the sick are exempted, is a matter, of course, in a socialist economy. The public at large must provide forthwith for those unable to work, not like now with paltry alms, but with generous provision, socialist child-raising, enjoyable care for the elderly, public health care for the sick, etc. One cannot realize socialism with lazy, frivolous, egoistic, thoughtless, and indifferent human beings. A socialist society needs human beings from whom each one in his place is full of passion and enthusiasm for the general well-being, full of the self-sacrifice and sympathy for his fellow human beings, full of courage and tenacity in order to dare to attempt the most difficult. Okay, so now let's listen to the second one. Socialism is the historical self-consciousness of capitalism, which is to say, we live in the unfinished task of making socialism, uh, which would take up all of the opportunity that exists in the revolution of capital, industrial production, mass politics, etc., and use it to revolutionize society and overcome wage labor. That would be socialism. We'd all work so that someday we all wouldn't have to. Right, so Aaron here is like postulating a bit more of a practical task, still couched very much in theoretical language, but gives us more of a picture of what she imagines uh, the revolution for socialism, the struggle for socialism to look like, or rather that it would need to be a revolutionizing of work and an overcoming of wage labor. So the actual demands, contrasted with Chris's, which was more so a historical understanding of the negative potential inside of capitalism. So she ends with everyone will have to work so that at one point we won't have to. Emphasis on the half, mm-hmm. right? Like she, it's a dialectical proposition. The idea that you can distribute the demands of labor onto the entire population of the world. And by doing so and coordinating it consciously, you could reach a point in which we're producing such things, let's say, as robots that could replace manual laborers. And so you're working towards the abolition of necessary labor time but the, this transition is, I mean, I thought that was interesting is that Aaron's bringing up the transition. Like yeah. that, well, first of all, you know, it's clear that the revolution is not about like, okay, then we wake up the next day and there's socialism. But what the revolution does is make certain problems within capitalism conscious to be addressed consciously, to organize production in a new way so that labor is organized in a new way. 
which is a task, right? Like I think Susie, you said like Erin is very, like there's a kind of practical dimension to her argument, which is like, okay, let's say that you are the revolutionary and that you're capable of having a successful revolution in the United States. What are part of the things that would be in the to-do list, right? And it is the reorganization of labor. Mm -hmm. Right, and I suppose like another way of putting her, her formulation that one day we all work so that one day we don't have to is just about the reproduction and production of society becoming conscious of itself mm -hmm. so that it could take itself on as subject and object. Mm -hmm. Making the unconscious conscious. Right, that's what, from Trotsky? <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was Freud. <laughs> it's, it's Trotsky, well, yeah, no, it's Trotsky. He puts it that way, like, in socialism, all that is unconscious becomes conscious, and it's somewhere in our platypus readings. Mm -hmm. Trotsky, in his biography, My Life, writes on the issue of conscious and unconscious. He says, Marxism considers itself the conscious expression of the unconscious historical process, but the unconscious process in the historical philosophical sense of the term, not in the psychological term, coincides with its conscious expression only at its highest point, when the masses, by sheer elemental pressure, break through the social routine and give victorious expression to the deepest needs of historical development. And at such moment, the highest theoretical consciousness of, of the epoch merges with the immediate action of those oppressed masses who are farthest away from theory. The creative union of the conscious with the unconscious is what one usually calls quote-unquote inspiration, revolution, is the inspired frenzy of history. I think we should play the Ben Waite. Okay. Because this is uh, connected. Socialism is a mode of production where the working class controls the means of production and an economy geared towards creating use value, not exchange value, but also... Socialism is a debate between the conscious and the unconscious. This is the result. Okay, just to... <laughs> okay. There are so... two people speaking in there. And the second person, whose name I don't know, he's saying that socialism is the debate between the conscious and the unconscious. Which raises an interesting, um, entirely different... And this, this is the result... And it's kind of unclear what this, this or this would be the result of the revolutionary process or something. But so there are two things really to address since this comment was two people. Right. So we have like a pretty good arc where first we had Chris looking at the unfulfilled potential for socialism within capitalism, that the future of capitalism is the future of socialism. Aaron takes this on a different route in saying that it's the overcoming of wage labor through revolutionizing work. She's really just sort of like taking a microscope onto what Chris is saying. And then Ben here is, is drawing from like the Bolsheviks. He's drawing from Lenin and Lenin's readings of Marx with the dictatorship of the proletariat, which is basically what he's defining is the proletariat controlling the means of production. And I don't think he necessarily said state power, but I'll throw my own... <laughs> <laughs> You'll add that, that little, yeah, yeah, because this is the one that makes you think about the state. Ben's is the one that really makes you think about like what's the problem of the state in capitalism and what would be the role and what's the significance of the state in the revolution. It also presents a tension because it's also about the workers being in power. And as we know, in Marx, there's the question of socialism as a state of a classless society as a moment in which the classes are abolished, right? And so what is this whole thing about the workers? They're the ones who already make the world, but they're not conscious of it. Which is maybe what his friend was trying to get at there. Because we did bring it up with Aaron's that all that's unconscious becomes conscious in socialism. Maybe I wouldn't put it necessarily as a debate, but it is pushing the tension between the two, at least historical consciousness, class consciousness, and the production of society. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not just the workers that make society. There used to be this debates back in the 19th century between socialists that would think that the object of socialism is just to like realize the true value of labor. Like the problem with capitalism is that laborers, they are the source of value. 
right? Because like the financiers and the merchants, that's just like fake. And the only like people that really contribute to the value creation is the workers. Okay, yeah, but, that's but not obviously what I was like we would need financiers yeah, in the yeah, revolution. Yeah. We would need you know we want more of that actually. We would need the bankers <laughs> because it's not just that the workers are the only people that are making society. Well, They're producing right? society. Well, then it matters, right? Why the workers need to take state power. Well, well, what is what is it the workers we have to become conscious of? They are the ones who are creating society, the society that they find themselves alienated from, right? And that it is that alienation that actually points to the potential of actually activating politically through the consciousness of the necessity of the revolution, then through the process, the revolutionary process itself, of the ways in which they make the world, but they're not always conscious of it. And then they can actually take the bull by the horns in taking over the state, in taking over and reorganizing production. Right, it's the reorganization of production that seems rather key. So state power, okay. So now that we have state power on the table, Lenin's creeped in. What are you doing here, Lenin? <laughs> Let's see, if I were to be Lenin here, I would uh, probably say that in order for like the particular national goal, which is just a step in the direction of international socialism to be successful, we would need the special bodies of armed men who have guns and can fight for the revolution. Well, and also, right, I mean, what happens when the workers take power, right? Like, what happened with the recuperadas in Argentina? Like, what happens when working people... Well, that's taking over a factor, which is not the same thing as taking power of the state. Precisely, because it's taking power to the point of production, right? It's like, if you want to coordinate production... So there's this alternative vision of socialism by, like, David Harvey, right? That, like, if you put side by side, like, workers' cooperatives alongside, like, private industry, like, the workers' cooperatives will just do better. And we should just let them compete side by side, and in that way, we can just create socialism, like, one workplace at a time, without state power, right? And then what happens when like the workers have workers democracy in their workplaces and it continues to grow and become popular? The state steps in and it wins these these factories back for the capitalists. Yeah, you need the state because the enforcer of law, right, is mobilized by the state. The men with guns are mobilized by the state. Right, and because it's a part of the organization of society and the organization of labor itself. And because in order for socialism to reach its like highest point the state would need to wither away however gradually that only comes from the proletariat taking it over yeah i mean that's i think lenin teaches us the wither all the way away of the state is very important in our formulation of socialism i think precisely because this is a point of contention within the left between the quote-unquote marxists and the quote-unquote anarchists right anarchists want to just abolish the state in one go throw it over, whatever, blow it up, you know. Blow shit up! <laughs> blow shit up. And the Leninist perspective is quite different, is that the state already is a structure that, as we know, also manages the antagonism uh, between the classes. It's the uh, dictatorship of capital. So the dictatorship of capital. So in order to have the dictatorship of the proletariat, however, right, you use the institutions of the state. But however, the idea to turning the state into something that can be slowly wither away, it's a very particular formulation about what other changes need to be taking place for the state to wither away. And might not even be possible until you have overcome something like the need for work or bourgeois right. Because the state emerges in capitalism above society. Right? And that's part of the problem that we're facing in the middle of the 19th century. And yet it is a product of society, it's a product of capitalism. I think that what you're talking about is the modern capitalist state, right? Like yeah. I, I sort of sighed and was like, ugh, historian in me was like, wait. I was thinking of the lectures by James Vaughn that we had in Platypus where he's talking about the emergence of bourgeois society. And what he talks about is the state coming, like forming together actually as a result of a crisis of feudal society, mm-hmm. that it's like the lords uh, consolidating their power and, you know, raising the armies. And so the, the, the state as such, like, comes out of a crisis of feudal society, at least, you know, in James's reading. Yeah, 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 and yeah. so what we're talking about by the 19th century is a crisis of bourgeois society wherein the state has to be lifted mm-hmm. above civil society. Exactly. Um, and what that means, for Marx at least, is that you can see how this happens or you can witness its expression in someone like Louis Bonaparte. Precisely. Where the people are not trusted 
and the people themselves need the state to act in their stead, right? And mm -hmm. the whole issue of the proletariat of the World Unite is that the leadership of the transformation of society from capitalism to socialism must be by the workers themselves. The workers themselves must take power, not ask the bourgeoisie for favors. Because when you ask the bourgeoisie for favors, it means that they are still in power in the state. And it means that the state continues to be the dictatorship of capital. And they will always function and make decisions in terms of maintaining that power, but also serving their own interests, right? Serving. The state serves the interests of capital. Yeah, and it serves the interests of capital, not yeah. capitalists, right? Because exactly. capitalists sometimes are disciplined by the state. As we saw during the financial, the recent financial crisis, the state steps in and saves capital, right? Despite having to lose some of its chief capitalists. They didn't lose that many. But <laughs> they were a few small sacrificial <laughs> lambs, but definitely not enough. Yeah, I mean, the people are fine. <laughs> This is Lenin in State and Revolution. When there is freedom, there will be no state. The economic basis for the complete withering away of the state is such a high state of development of communism at which the antithesis between mental and physical labor disappears at which there consequently disappears one of the principal sources of modern social inequality. A source, moreover, which cannot on any account be removed immediately by the mere conversion of the means of production into public property, by the mere expropriation of the capitalists. That is why we are entitled to speak only of the inevitable withering away of the state, emphasizing the protracted nature of this process and its dependence upon the rapidity of development of the higher phase of communism, and leaving the question of the time required for, or the concrete forms of, the withering away quite open, because there is no material for answering these questions. The state will be able to wither away completely when society adopts the rule, from each according to his ability, to each according to his needs, That is, when people have become so accustomed to observing the fundamental rules of social intercourse, and when their labor has become so productive that they will voluntarily work according to their ability. But the other Ben Waite thing is the unconscious conscious, or, you know, the tension, what Susie said was the tension between the unconscious and the conscious. Right, as you said, like as trying to push actually the contradiction or push the the tension between the two such that like the unconscious potential the unconscious potential of industrial production comes into the conscious control of the workers it's a weird formulation to put see i liked it, it is about the... i liked it i thought it was good because it was also it raises you know because these are psychoanalytic categories the unconscious and so in some respects it raises this other issue the other part of the dialectic which is the individual right mm -hmm. if we've been talking about society it's also about the relationship between the individual and society the ways that the unconscious is shaped by the individual's experience in society and to, to what extent would that be transformed in the transformation from capitalism to socialism and so capitalism again is not simply a matter of giving a bigger pie for the workers, not, nor is it just about a transformation in the mode of production per se, but it's about a fundamental transformation of the human, right? Of the human species, its species being. Yeah. The individual, meaning when I, when I think about the, the issue of the individual, of the unconscious becoming conscious, I think about the, you know, what is it that's becoming conscious, is right? Like the individual is the commodity um, that exchanges their own labor as a commodity. They themselves are the commodity in capitalism I mean, that is but that is also emancipatory potential i mean thinking about lukacs in that sense perhaps or thinking about lukacs formulation of what is proletarian consciousness consciousness okay i mean this is also a common thread across the responses right aaron aaron's formulation was that socialism is the historical self-consciousness of capitalism and chris also emphasized This, this notion of the self, self-acting and self-knowing. Um, so there's this problem that we're trying to figure out and we haven't figured it out yet, which is like, how does a society move forward without leaving anybody behind? And socialism to me is an umbrella term for a lot of uh, ideas 
for what that solution could look like. And they all have one thing in common, which is they agree that people should expect to get something from society, but they should also expect to give something to society. And that give and get should be the same for everybody. Um, there should be no preferential treatment in anybody in the society. Yeah, I think that Raul kind of also like does relate to one, this idea that socialism has become this sort of wide-ranging umbrella term, what he defines it as, as this formulation of like to give something to society and to be able to take something from society. Get um, something back. Get something back, right? It's this relationship of the individual to society. What what kind of relationship, how, do we, is, how is that mediated, I guess, would be the issue that socialism raises. Then there's the issue of, right, everybody should be treated equally and no preferential treatment, which, you know, the issue of quality is a big one to consider um, whether or not each one of us is equal or not equal and what does it actually mean to say equal treatment. Uh, meaning equality is, you know, egalité, it's a French revolutionary term, it's it's related to... <laughs> well, <And> egalité, <laughs> my that French. one like revolutionary demand, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but it's tricky because meaning at least Lenin actually kind of also flips it a little and raises at some point the issue of like that everybody is not equal and that that one always like stuck with me in fact to consider that there would be different needs right a, a single yeah. woman versus a single mother versus a family of seven versus a family of 12 right there are different need people at different time ages at stages of their life single right. people single people just saying <laughs> uh, yeah the ability to actually stay single for god's sake imagine that uh. <laughs> it's it's related though I, I agree it's related to um so you know going back to young mark's film right why replace all men are brothers with proletariat of the world unite like why not just the old egalite right why not just egalite mm -hmm. again in 1848 and why why sort of uh present the issue of class society the inequality of class society as like critical to unlocking the potential of capitalism through socialism that it's not about just making people equal right raul had this other part of the answer that i i quite liked because it brought me back to um the tasking that chris was talking about because he was like socialism is a way of answering a problem right mm -hmm. of addressing a problem Right. And the problem is how does a society move forward without leaving anyone behind? That's how he put it. Yeah. Uh, and in some ways, it's actually quite a liberal formulation. Right. It's yeah. like moving everyone like what is Progress. the what is the tide that lifts all boats? Right. Like capitalism is supposed to be the tide that lifts all boats. Um, progress together, not just like some, not some, but all. I'm really bad at remembering where the quotes come from, but on the on the note of equality, the way that Marx put it is that it could possibly look like having an equal measure, an equal measure among unequal work, as in one person can do, one person can produce more in an hour than another, but they would mm -hmm. be paid at the same wage, like based on their ability to produce. And so it is equality in like the sense that we understand it now, but pushes the contradiction of the wage itself and the contradiction of the necessity to work. So, equality, boing, is in crisis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, right? Like, that's the number one thing that everybody recognizes, that we live in a society where there is wretched inequalities. I guess the, the particular thing with Raoul's response to what is socialism is he asks first, how does society move forward without leaving anybody behind? And this might be one of, like, the clearer contradictions we've had in our responses in which uh, things are, plenty, plenty is left behind. Maybe the people who can't work are left yeah. behind, or maybe just the old world is left behind. But Marx takes it up when he's, when he's talking about the equal abstraction of unequal labor, saying that it's only through this that we get to that high stage of communism. Because that's like a high stage of communism. Yeah. This is Marx in the German Ideology. For as soon as the distribution of labor comes into being, each man has a particular exclusive sphere of activity, which is forced upon him and from which he cannot escape. He's a hunter, a fisherman, a herdsman, or a critical critic. 
and must remain so if he does not want to lose his means of livelihood. While in communist society, where nobody has one exclusive sphere of activity, but each can become accomplished in any branch he wishes, society regulates the general production and thus makes it possible for me to do one thing today and another tomorrow, to hunt in the morning, fish in the afternoon, rear cattle in the evening, criticize after dinner, just as I have a mind, without ever becoming hunter, fisherman, herdsman, or critic. Exactly. And Lenin picks up on it. I believe in state and revolution. Yeah, I mean, in that one is the one that has stuck with me and I use in most casual conversations with people because I think it crystallizes things, particularly this exchange of how you mediate the relationship of the individual to society. And people's needs, you know, social, meaning for me, like socialism is where people's, where all needs, where the needs are met. And then we get to explore what potential the individual has after they don't have to worry about needs. No? Well, what kind of needs, right? Needs. Shelter, clothes, food, education. Fucking. Sure. Well, that one doesn't get, (laughs) I mean... Oh, we talk about fucking. We talk plenty about fucking. Like the general um, harem, you know, generalized prostitution taking over marriage. Yeah. It's going to be taken care it of. It better be. <laughs> there are individual needs that are not going to be met by socialism. Well, that will make right? possible. Like. Right. Like there will still be unhappiness, but that unhappiness could take on like a new meaning and that the unhappiness won't just be the general unhappiness of everyone because there would be the possibility for transformation and so it wouldn't be like abject despair yeah shall we play the last one yeah are you happy with that (laughs) okay just want to meet your needs girl i think any understanding of socialism must start with a thorough understanding of its historical opposite i.e capitalism As the 20th century showed us, even the finest minds of revolution, and certainly its dimmest lights, obfuscated the distinction. Socialism meant state ownership, industrial progress, housing, bread, electricity. It meant primitive accumulation and value production. It meant social democracy. But these are all achievable things within capitalism. In the duration of its existence, socialism with a capital S tried to outdo capitalism on its own terms and unsurprisingly it failed at the task. Too often did its conceptual horizons mirror the concrete horizons of advanced liberal capitalism. But might we not expect that capitalism's congenital bugbear, i.e. socialism, look rather different, indeed more threatening than all of this? But today socialism does appear threatening, it seems. Hence the qualifying of what variant of socialist you are and of the move to simply smuggle in the content of socialism under a new or new old banner. The task of socialists, I think, should aim to analyze all of capitalism's contradictions and work to clarify how we might break through them. So it does bring us back to the task of socialism. What is this task? And one formulation that he gives is is this aim to analyze all the contradictions. Break break through them. And break through them. It's not the same as work through them. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually, you know, I think that the starting premise, um, this is Sammy, by the way, um, that capitalism is the historical opposite of socialism. And actually, I think there's a tension there between Sammy and how Chris put it, which is this realization of capitalism through socialism, like the realization, rather, of the potential of capitalist society through socialism or whether it's its opposite, right? And so, like, what what does it mean to say that socialism is the opposite of capitalism? He also says that socialism historically tried to beat capitalism at its own game, at its own task, maybe. Um, And I took this as, like, maybe a way of trying to reformulate, or maybe unconsciously reformulating, that the potential for socialism is within capitalism. It's opposite, maybe, in that, like, as in opposite numbers, capitalism being the negative image of the possibility for socialism, but still problematic, maybe just, like, unclarified. But if socialism is trying to beat capitalism as at its own game, it's because capitalism 
um, was able to make that game, you know, the, the industrial organization of society. I think also, like, when he goes on to sort of explain what he's talking about, meaning the beating at, you know, their own game. He's talking about the Soviet Union. He's, I, that's what I thought. He's talking about social democracy as well, housing, etc., through the state. At its own game, he means within the limits of a capitalist state, just by taking over state power and maintaining some kind of regime of socialism within the larger context of world capitalism, whether that be through the Soviet Union or social democrats, social democratic reform. Or smuggling it in under a, the banner of a different right. name. Okay. Um, socialism appears threatne- threatening, he says, and so it's smuggled in under other names in order to keep its memory alive? I think that he's suggesting that it's like a really positive reading of the present. He's suggesting that the reason why people have to turn socialism into a harmless social democracy is because socialism is still unconsciously actually threatening. That So it's, it's here, but it's not here. So that people can say socialism when they say as the the guy that uh, we talked about in the podcast who was in Jacobin magazine talking about when he became a socialist is when somebody explained it to them that it was just like, you know, Bernie and like progressive Democrats, essentially. And he was like, oh, it's not threatening anymore. So now I can be down with it. It's fine. I can be a socialist too. But Sammy, I guess, is reading it kind of negatively and saying, well, you know, maybe people then are aware of the fact that socialism would be like a threatening force, which... What that means, right? The armed power of the state under the proletariat dictatorship, mm-hmm. and how threatening it is to talk about that after the twentieth century. Yeah, it's certainly not a threat felt under Sanders or Corbyn. I think it's a threat that's actively repressed. You know, like people have reported to us and meetings in the DSA when someone will ask the question, like, "What is socialism?" And then the response by the moderator is, it's not the time to ask these questions. So that's when the threat is felt, right? When it's like the disaster of the 20th century, it's going to creep in the room. And it's already there, you know? It's just that to make it conscious would be a problem because it would be divisive. Exactly. And that they see that kind of historical work as a burden, unnecessary, not the right time. Sometimes it's even less than just advice. It simply would be a distraction because what they really want is just to get some people elected into government. But it also is like they understand that it's a threat. You know, we could postulate that it's just like um, that socialism in a Marxist sense is incompatible with socialism in a DSA sense, but we could also just say that it's illiberal or would require a certain amount of illiberalism. Yeah, warfare and uh, potentially the forcing of people to work or the leaving behind of people who don't. Yeah. It's not to be taken with a tender heart and it takes a lot of unglamorous and hard work to accomplish. I completely 100% agree with what you've just said. Also, though, I'm, what comes to mind is Zizek emphasizing what he thinks is necessary to people, which is that heads will roll. Right? And you need to steal yourself, right? Like none of this liberal talk here, you know, like sufferings will be made and, you know, like, and the blood sort of, you know, of it all and whatever. And I think that what that is about is this kind of misunderstanding about the relationship between Marxism and liberalism. That it wasn't about like saying that these values are garbage, right? That we wouldn't want to live in a world without war. Obviously, as Marx says, we would like to live in a world without war. That's the ideal society. And so it's difficult because I think that the formulation ought to be that revolutionary war, state power, this formulation of what would be necessary in order to create the possibility for maybe socialism is necessary, unfortunately. Right. I suppose like what I what I meant to say isn't drawing out the threat of those illiberalisms, the warfare, and anything that potentially could happen, but exactly as you said, that it may lead to socialism. Um, Lenin says, like, his children won't see socialism, but maybe if they work hard enough, 
and the next generation works hard enough, his children's children will see socialism. We can't be certain, because maybe the, the one point that we do make in Platypus is that the left is responsible for its own failures. And so, so far, all of the things that have been done for socialism have just been bad because it's amounted to nothing. I mean, we have to remember, we have to remember that like a lot of the liberal reforms that have been won throughout like the 20th century, those are the ones that, that we still have. I've often been a result of socialists and revolutionaries threatening revolution if those reforms are not absolutely are not passed, right? And absolutely. so so while the communists haven't given us the revolution, the liberals on their own may have not done much. And so there's a kind of hypocrisy or what Lukacs calls the mendacious consciousness of the bourgeoisie after 1848, which is that, you know, the liberals are saying, well, okay, now, you know, nowadays after the 20th century has passed, like, okay, maybe liberals say, well, the communists, they just want war, right? And we're keeping the peace. But what peace? You know, like wars are led by, by Democrats. They're led by liberals. And that like communists can't fall into that hypocrisy either. But nor can we denounce the values of liberalism as if that's not a desirable, it's not a desirable society. Because of course, I would like to live like Tom Paine wanted to live, like Adam Smith wanted to live in a world where you could have just the exchange of goods in a peaceful society. But we don't. But we don't. Right. So I guess Sammy is like, the formulation is like leading to a lot of problems. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but that's also a good place to end. We're not like here talking about this because we have a clear-cut answer to the question. We're trying to raise the problem caused by raising the question. We're trying to ask better questions. Right. The failures of the left have the failures of Marxism haunt us today. They do in a real way, in a, in a way, way that we can feel it when we try to understand, right? When we genuinely try to understand what it, what are the tasks today for socialists. Once we start taking those up, right, once we say it's not too early to talk about that, once we say, like, what, what, should, what should the socialists do? How, how should they think about their historical mission? But it's really unclear. Yeah. The task of socialism is unclear. And what we have, what was the clearest formulation? To realize the potential of capitalism. To realize the potential of capital. But then it means that capitalism, though, contains within it the potential for socialism. And so as much as people try to ignore it or not talk about it or say that it's too early to have these conversations, you know, our epoch still contains this need to realize. And so our task is to ask it, to ask the question. Yeah, it's not going anywhere. Yeah, I guess that's one optimistic note. So far as the question can still be raised. I think uh, that's all we can do, folks, for 2018. I think we've uh, tried to give you a sense of where we're at and hopefully some of this was helpful yeah made you think made you want to think made you want to read <laughs> made you want to watch the young marks you should everybody's it's should. good this is good. It's pretty good all right as always everyone um please feel free to send us your questions yes. your comments and concerns uh we accept all forms <laughs> of trolling and our email is in the description. Yeah, and what do you want to see? 2019, what do you want to hear from us? Task us. Task. Give us a task. Us. <laughs> okay, All right. see you in the new year. Good night, 2018. Bye. Bye. Well, the old world's a thing of the past. The old world's fading fast. Oh, I say goodbye to the old world Whoa. Oh, I see the fifties apartment house Oh, it's bleak in the morning sun Oh, it's alone now An isolated part of the old world
Say bye bye, oh.